And we are going to be in John chapter 7 today. As you're turning to John chapter 7, I'll let you know we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order because we want to see the Jesus of the Bible for ourselves, what he taught, what he said, what he did, how he lived. We want to know him for ourselves straight from his word. And last week, we heard Jesus challenge us with the urgency of following him. And once again, he made it very clear that the decision to follow him is the decision to follow him above everything else and everyone else. This week, Jesus is going to reach Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He's going to teach at the temple. He's going to have some contentious back and forth with the religious leaders that's going to teach us some incredible truths about Jesus and about ourselves. Let's jump in. John chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? It's important to understand every time we read John's gospel, when you see the phrase, the Jews, he's not talking about the people, he's talking about the Jewish religious leadership at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who made up the ruling religious council of Israel at that time, which was called the Sanhedrin. Even though Israel as a country was under Roman rule, there was this ruling religious council to handle Jewish religious affairs in the country, and that's who Jesus is talking about when he talks about the Jews. He's not talking about the people. Parenthetically, we see here that the religious leadership expected Jesus to be at the feast. They expected him to be at the feast. Where is this man that Israel is buzzing about? Where is the one who drove us out of our minds last time he was here? Where is he? We know he's coming. In other words, they expected Jesus to be at church. Why? Because Luke 4.16 tells us that attending synagogue every Sabbath, every Saturday, was Jesus' custom. It was his habit. It was his practice. And so as your first fill-in, I want you to make a note of this. The expectation was that Jesus would not miss church. Jesus would not miss church. There are so many reasons that are great to go to church. But the two best reasons are, firstly, God's word tells us to do it. We're instructed to go to church, to meet together, to encourage one another, to grow as a community of faith. Secondly, Jesus went to church every Sabbath. And I have to laugh when I realize that there are some believers who don't go to any church because they say, you know, I've heard it all. There's nothing new. I've learned everything there is that I can learn. There's no new insights for me. That There's nothing I can really be taught. Do you think that when Jesus went to synagogue, he was sitting out there going, oh my, how insightful. I've never heard this before. What an incredible new angle on the book that I wrote. Jesus went to church every Sabbath because he loved the church, he loved the people of God, and he loved his Father in heaven. May we follow his example. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
The literal word there is that there was whispering among the people. Apparently, everyone believed that if you spoke openly about Jesus, you were at risk at running afoul of the leading Jewish authorities. Perhaps a a little beating here, a temporary imprisonment there, an expulsion from your local synagogue. There was fear in the people because they knew the Jewish religious leadership was out to get Jesus. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Temple Mount was was a huge area at this time, and surrounding the building of the temple were several massive porches or patios, we would call them. And one of them was called Solomon's Porch, Solomon's Colonnade, or the Royal Porch. And it had a roof over it that was supported by these enormous columns. And what would happen is rabbis would walk that patio through the columns, or maybe they would sit and there disciples would stand and listen as they taught, and there would be multiple, perhaps even a couple of dozen rabbis in this area at any given time, and it was sort of the hotbed of theology in the city of Jerusalem. Even if you weren't a rabbi or you weren't a disciple of a rabbi, you could go stand on the fringes of his group and listen in as he taught his yoke, his specific interpretation of the scriptures, his interpretation of Torah. Jesus shows up in public at Solomon's porch. Remember, he's under the threat of death and begins to teach in this specific area of the temple, quickly attracting a crowd. Imagine how this must have driven the religious leaders out of their minds because when they didn't find Jesus in the caravan of travelers that were coming down from Galilee, they must have thought, I guess he's not coming, perhaps. Maybe we finally intimidated him. I mean, we can't find him. Where is he? He's not here, apparently. And they're thinking, oh, good, this whole thing is just going to blow over. He's finally realized who he's messing with, and the whole thing's just going to disappear. And then all of a sudden, somebody bursts into their offices and says, Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching. All the people were afraid to even speak about Jesus openly. They were in fear of the religious leaders, but Jesus has no fear. He's not intimidated even a bit. He comes out at his timing in public and begins to teach. They have absolutely no power over him. And it must have frustrated them to no end. Verse 15, and the Jews marveled. Again, the leaders marveled saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? As we're going to see throughout this chapter, Jesus taught with more power, authority, and insight than anyone who has ever lived in history. These scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees aren't marveling that Jesus is literate. That's not what they're talking about here. The best way to think of this is the way we put letters after our names on a business card or on a desktop plaque if we have attained some sort of degrees and certification. PhD. B.A., M.Div., etc. There were around 30 seminaries in the city of Jerusalem at this time, and each seminary had a specific interpretation of Torah, of Scripture. They taught a specific view of theology. But when these religious leaders, who are all highly educated in the seminary system, when they hear Jesus teaching, they marvel because they realize wait a minute, he's not teaching something from any seminary. 
He's not teaching something he got from a rabbi that got it from a rabbi before him that got it from a rabbi before him. He's teaching something completely new. What's going on? He hasn't even been to seminary. And so they marvel and they say to each other, where's this coming from? Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Don't you love Jesus's answer? He doesn't say, I'm self-taught, guys. He says, I'm just sharing what the Father has shared with me. I'm just sharing and teaching the overflow of my prayer times with my Father. My personal times meditating on the scriptures in the presence of my Father. You see, I've been seeking the Father to find out what he wants. And that's all I'm sharing as I teach here. It's interesting that Jesus chose 12 disciples who had not been seminary trained. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, after Jesus has returned to heaven, it documents Peter and John being dragged before the Sanhedrin and being told, stop preaching Jesus. Spoiler alert, they don't agree to go along with that. Here's what the Bible says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, ministry isn't just about what you know. It's about whom you've been spending time with. The power comes from being with the Lord. Let's throw out some names. Some of you might know who've been around Christianity for a while. G. Campbell Morgan, incredible Bible teacher and writer. D.L. Moody. Many of you have heard of D.L. Moody. Here's one. Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley. These are men who turned the world upside down for Jesus. None of them went to seminary. None of them. When my pastor first went to a Calvary chapel and was interested in getting on staff and becoming a pastor there, when they found out that he had a degree from a seminary, they were like, oh man, I'm not sure if God can use you because you've been, now you're tainted. And they think that way because sometimes a PhD in biblical studies just means piled higher and deeper. (laughs) But let me counter that by saying this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, was used by God to do that, had a doctorate in theology in just about every seminary degree you can think of. He was an academic intellectual and a brilliant man, and the Lord used him as well. The point is this. God uses both. Going to seminary won't make a person called to ministry, and it won't anoint them for ministry. At the same time, if you are called, if you do have a calling to teach or preach or lead a church, then you need to live up to that calling by growing in the knowledge that is going to help you fulfill your calling in the greatest way possible. You need to live up to that high calling. Fortunately, there are ways to do that without accruing $100,000 debt in student loans. My story is that I went to Bible college for one semester. That was all I could handle. And I I won't get into my gripe session about that, but I couldn't handle more than one semester. What happened with me is the Lord led me to a, a great pastor and Bible teacher, and I spent seven and a half years learning from him, learning how to love the word of God, learning how to study, learning how to teach the word of God. That was my story, but the Lord uses both. He uses seminary and he uses individual people discipling others. 
He's not limited in any way. This next verse is profound. Don't miss this. Verse 17, I want you to underline, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know. Just underline that first part. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The dilemma that Jesus is addressing is, well, how can we tell Jesus if what you're teaching is really true or just something you made up. And Jesus says, if you want to know the truth about God, you have to first determine and commit yourself to doing his will once it has been revealed to you. In other words, if you want to know God, then you have to decide in advance that you're going to serve him if he reveals himself to you. Another way to say it would be, if you want to know the will of God, you must first commit to do the will of God. You gotta decide before it's even revealed to you. That's profound because Jesus is telling us this, write this down, the will of God is not for the curious, but for the committed. The will of God, the truth, will never be revealed to the person whose attitude is, tell me what your will is, Lord. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal the truth to me, and then I'll evaluate you. I will evaluate your glory, I will evaluate your will, and I'll decide if I'll worship you. I will decide if I will obey your will. Jesus says the will of God is not for the curious. It's for the committed. Sometimes when you can't find the will of God, it's because you're curious. You're not committed. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. We've talked before about how the will of God and God himself is progressively revealed. Every single person on the planet is given a certain amount of revelation of God. God is revealed to them to a certain degree. It may be as simple as the glory of the heavens at night, the night sky, the universe, the stars. That is a revelation of God. And the Bible teaches, depending on what you do with the revelation you receive, will determine whether or not you get more. So the person who looks up at the night sky and says, there is something greater than me going on here. The person who realizes their conscience is within them, testifying to them says, there's something greater going on here. That person's going to get more revelation. But the person who is pricked by their conscience, looks up at the night sky, but instead chooses to go, well, I don't really want to acknowledge my conscience because it might get in the way of me doing what I want to do. So I'll carve myself a God out of a piece of wood that is exactly who I want him to be, and I'll worship that God. I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. God says, hey, there's no more revelation coming for you. That's just the existence of God. If you want to get all the way to knowing the will of God, for your life, you have to commit to doing his will first. You got to commit to doing his will. And here's how you and I can evaluate that. What are we doing right now with the will of God that has already been revealed to us in his word? Let me say this again. This is how you can evaluate whether you really will to do the will of God. So if you're praying, God, show me your will, and you're thinking, I'm already doing his will. I'm determined to do his will, so he should reveal his will to me. If you want to know if you're really serious about the will of God, ask yourself this. Are, are you doing the will of God that you already know about? The things he's shown you in his word, how are you responding to them? 
We have in the scriptures the revealed will of God for work, for marriage, for friendship, for family, for money, for attitude, and so much more. If you and I ever find ourselves in the place when we're racking our brains and stressing out over trying to discern the will of God for our lives, we would be wise to stop and evaluate whether we're doing the will of God that has already been revealed to us. Because the will of God is not for the curious. Jesus said, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was never concerned with building a big ministry? He was never concerned with anything other than doing what would please and bless his heavenly father. And you know what? He succeeded in doing that. When you read about the times that people marveled at the miracles he performed and praised someone or gave glory to someone, it says they glorified his father in heaven. That was always the goal for Jesus. And for that heart, because he lived that way, the father says that he will exalt Jesus above everything in the ages to come. That's our model. We are to strive to bring glory to Jesus. And he has promised incredibly that if we will strive to bring glory to him, we will be glorified in the presence of his father. It's amazing. Jesus makes a really great point to the religious leaders. Namely, that his entire ministry is about bringing glory to his heavenly father and not himself. So if he is a fraud, if he is out to deceive the people, why isn't he trying to make himself rich and famous? What's in it for him if his motives are so nefarious? What's his motive? If he's not getting rich, famous, loved by everyone, if, if he's in trouble, if his life is difficult, if he's directing all the glory to his father, then What's his motive if he's a bad guy? It's why the testimony of the disciples is so powerful. After the death of Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, you won't be able to come up if you study it with any other motive for the disciples. Those who say, oh, they faked the whole thing are completely nonsensical. Because think about this. There's no reason for them to lie. The lie of Jesus didn't make them rich. The lie of Jesus didn't give them power. They didn't take a bunch of wives or get into any sexually bizarre cultish behavior. They were just under threat and persecution from Rome and from their own people, the Jews. They would end up being beaten, tortured, and murdered, dying for their testimony about Jesus. What's their motive to lie? The only explanation is that they weren't lying. They were telling the truth. The person who seeks his own glory is the person who serves God with ulterior motives. And I know when we hear ulterior motives, we're all thinking about, oh, the televangelist who wants to get famous or some radical example like that. But ulterior motives can be much more subtle. It's easy for me to serve out of a desire to be affirmed by people. You do such a great job. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for coming early. Thank you for serving. It's really easy to sometimes serve the Lord for that affirmation that we need. It's easy for me to serve when I enjoy doing something or only when I enjoy doing something. Sometimes my service is just borderline recreational. It's something I do anyway for fun. 
It's easy for me to serve so that I can make friends or build new social relationships. And none of those things are bad. They're good things. It's good to encourage and it's good to be encouraged. It's good to serve by doing something you love. Praise God for that. It's good to build new relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. But our motivation in service to God should be first and foremost to honor Jesus. Write that down. Our motivation should be first and foremost to honor Jesus. Do you know how you can tell what your motivation really is in serving the Lord? You can tell by what your reaction is, what your response is when you don't get any of those things. When you serve and nobody affirms you, nobody remembers to say thank you. When you serve and it's not something that you enjoy doing. When you serve and it doesn't give you the chance to build fun new relationships. How do I do in those situations? Am I able to say today was a good day because Jesus was glorified and I got to serve him? Is that enough? In Jesus' most difficult moment of service, the cross, there was no affirmation from anyone. The Father, from whom he had been eternally linked with, the Father whom he had never been separated from, in his moment of greatest service on the cross, he was left alone by even his Father. His Father turned his back on him, couldn't look at him as he became sin incarnate. There was no joy for Jesus in serving by dying a brutally painful death. And his closest friends abandoned him. But Jesus willed to do the will of his father. When it comes to serving Jesus, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? And am I grumpy? Am I angry? Am I bitter? When there's nothing in it except the satisfaction of serving the Lord. How am I doing with my motivation? Verse 19, Jesus keeps speaking. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? He's saying, you're professional law keepers, and none of you keep the law. But you want to kill me? Jesus is pushing their buttons. Their big area of pride was we keep the law down to the letter. We even keep letters of the law that God didn't write. We added ourselves. We're that serious about keeping the law. And Jesus says, none of you keep the law, but you want to come after me? You see, the Holy Spirit and the New Testament explain to us that the law was designed by God to be a mirror that would allow each of us to see our own sinfulness. The idea is we would look at the law of God and then look at ourselves and go, nobody can keep this. I could never keep all these laws. I've broken almost every single one of these. That was the whole point. The law was a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ to lead us to understanding our need for God and our need for salvation. But these supposed experts of the law were missing the whole point of the law. Verse 20, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? You have a demon was a cultural saying of the time. Just like we would say, you're crazy. Most of the time when we say that, we don't actually mean you are chemically, medically insane. We mean, oh, you're crazy, you're, you're foolish, you're misperceiving things. We don't actually mean they're out of their mind, usually. And that's the same idea here. They don't actually think Jesus is insane. They're just like, you're crazy. Stop this. No, nobody's trying to kill you. 
And apparently, while, while all the people knew, it was an open secret that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Most of them didn't seem to think that they would actually go through with it. They're like, your life's not actually in danger. Come on. But now here's what's interesting. Jesus knows that the religious leaders want to kill him. They don't know that he knows that they want to kill him. So they're surprised as he begins to speak to them about this. Not only that, but Jesus is going to address, he's going to speak to their private reasons, their private justifications for wanting to kill him. As he's speaking to them, they have to be thinking, how does he know this stuff? Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel." Jesus is referring to the lame man that he healed at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem about a year and a half ago back in John 5. He says, I did that one thing and you all marvel. Verse 22, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Circumcision actually started earlier with Abraham. And then Jesus says, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. The law from God said that when a Jewish boy was born, he had to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. The law also said that the Sabbath, every Saturday, was to be a day of rest. You could do no work. But if a Jewish boy's eighth day of life happened to fall on a Sabbath, they would still circumcise him on that eighth day because they believed that circumcision was a greater law, a higher law, a greater good than even the Sabbath. So Jesus' logic here is brilliant and, and beautifully simple. Verse 23, he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? He's saying, you teach and practice circumcision, the cutting of the flesh on the Sabbath. I made a man's flesh whole. I healed him on the Sabbath but that's a problem to you. If circumcision is a higher law than the Sabbath, how in the world can healing a man, making his body whole, not also be a higher law on the Sabbath? Basic logic being used here by Jesus to point out just how crazy their reasoning is, even from a theological standpoint. Then in verse 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. I want you to underline that whole verse. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I can't read that incredible statement by Jesus without also hearing in my heart the Lord's words to the prophet Samuel when he was sent to anoint King David when King David was just a young man. Do you remember the verse the Lord told Samuel this? He said, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's so easy for our biases, our prejudices, our sinful nature to affect the way we view people in situations. Jesus's exhortation, his word to the religious leaders is, guys, be sober-minded Judge through the lens of the word of God. See people the way my father sees them. See situations the way my father sees them. Trust God's word over your own opinions. Seek the Lord before you condemn a man. Judge with humility, considering yourself, because there's almost always more going on than appears at the surface. There are only two types of people in this room. 
those who have really put their foot in their mouth by judging too quickly, and those who are willing to lie about having put their foot in their mouth and judging too quickly. That's why one of my favorite verses in the Bible is James 1.15, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Thank God that he gives us wisdom when we ask for it so that we can judge wisely and evaluate the world around us, evaluate other people in a godly way, including ourselves. Powerful words from Jesus, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem, people of the crowd said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now some of the people acknowledge the rumors that the Jewish religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. The people are picking up that, that something's a little bit off. Jesus is speaking in public, but the religious leaders aren't trying to lay a hand on him. So the people are trying to figure out what's going on here. They're looking at Jesus and they're also thinking, why do they want to kill him? What in the world is going on here? So they speculate, do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. They're referring to a prophecy that was found back in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah that they were misinterpreting. We're not going to get into that today. I'll just tell you they were misinterpreting it. Just as they were a prophecy from Malachi, which led to the expectation and belief that the Messiah would just appear one day as if out of nowhere. No one would know where he was from, what family he was from or anything. And that's a belief still held by many Jews who don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, who are still waiting for Messiah. They believe that he's just going to appear one day as if out of nowhere. So they're saying because of that prophetic rumor, that prophetic misinterpretation of Torah, they were saying, oh, well, we know where Jesus is from. So clearly he's not the Messiah. What you need to know is just as is the case today, it was the case then that most people are completely illiterate when it comes to biblical prophecy. We see that here because they say nobody will know where Messiah comes from but just ahead in verse 42, they'll also say that Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. So which is it? Does Messiah come from Bethlehem or does nobody know where he comes from? They're very, very, very confused. They have some strong opinions about Bible prophecy, but they don't really know what they're talking about. And they use their strong opinions to dismiss Jesus. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out. So at this point, he raises his voice as he's teaching on Solomon's porch. He raises his voice so that everyone can hear this. And he says, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Jesus says, I'm here to do my father's work. And my father is the Lord. And you don't know him. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. I know my Father in heaven because I'm from heaven. I've been sent here by my Father who is in heaven. This is a huge statement from Jesus. He's saying, I, I've come from heaven, from the Father, to do my Father's will. Unsurprisingly, the Pharisees and unbelieving people don't take well to Jesus declaring himself to be the son of God. And Jesus also telling them that they don't know his father in heaven. They don't know the Lord. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet 
come. The religious leaders who'd been listening to Jesus teach finally say, that's enough, we can't take anymore, arrest him. We don't know what happened exactly, but we know they weren't able to arrest him. Perhaps Jesus became invisible to their perception, just blended into the crowd as he had before in a similar situation. But however it happened, they wanted to seize him and they just couldn't because it wasn't his time yet for that to happen. I want us to notice that the Holy Spirit told Jesus not to go to Jerusalem with his family. You remember we talked about that last week? He says, I'm not gonna travel with you guys. They're trying to kill me down there. I'll, I'll come later on my own. But here we find Jesus in Jerusalem. He's traveled there in secret. He's speaking in public and no one can lay a hand on him. So if no one can lay a hand on Jesus because his time has not yet come, then why did he need to travel in secret to Jerusalem? I mean, if nobody can lay a hand on him, well, couldn't he just march right in? What we're seeing here is the balance between practical wisdom and God's plan. Such a crucial, crucial concept for believers. They're trying to kill you in Jerusalem, so take the appropriate precautions. But when you get to Jerusalem, do whatever your father tells you, even if it means going out in public and preaching, because nobody can touch you until it's your time. Do you see the balance? You might have heard me or some other preacher say, you know, until the Lord determines that your time is up, you are invincible. Okay, Jeff, so I can jump off the Portman Bridge and I won't die because it's not my time? No. If you jump off the Portman Bridge, it will be your time. I can guarantee you that, and I'm not a prophet. There's a balance between practical wisdom and God's plan. Let me be real practical because as Christians, we make so many mistakes in this area. I don't need life insurance. God will take care of me and my family if I die early. Practical wisdom says, have life insurance. Maybe it's part of God's plan to take care of you. God's plan says, and trust that the Lord will take care of your family if you die early. It's both. It's not one or the other. You don't lack faith if you do some practical planning. And you lack wisdom if you do no practical planning and expect that faith is just going to bail you out. Tithing won't stop you from getting demoted or fired if you're always late to work and you have a bad attitude. Practical wisdom God's plan work together. God generally won't provide a job out of thin air if you just sit at home and say, I'm having faith. You need to go apply for some jobs, hand out some resumes, get some interviews, do some follow-up. Practical wisdom, and God will provide. He has a plan. You need to trust the Lord to lead you to the right man or woman to marry, but you need to give him some opportunities to lead you to the right man or woman to marry. You can't just stay at home watching TV and expect to knock on the door from your future spouse. That's probably not going to happen. You need to pursue some things. Get involved with some ministries that give you a chance to meet some people, some potential future spouses. Spouse, singular. I don't want you to marry multiple people. One spouse. There's a balance between practical wisdom and God's plan. And Jesus models that for us in this chapter. My pastor used to say, you know, the Lord provides the worm for the bird, but he doesn't drop it off at the nest. There's practical wisdom. The bird's got to go out and look for the worm. God's plan is that he will provide it as he goes out and looks for it. Jesus models the balance. Write this down. 
the balance between practical wisdom and trusting God's plan. Practical wisdom and trusting God's plan. Let's always remember that. Verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Some of the people are starting to realize we're waiting for Messiah. What the heck else are we expecting Messiah to do? This guy is raising the dead. He's causing the lame to walk. He's making the blind see. He's preaching with power. And when people try to arrest him, they can't touch him. What else is Messiah supposed to do? So some people are starting to get it. Verse 32 The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day, the law keepers, while the Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day. The Sadducees were materialists. They didn't believe in any type of spiritual realm, any type of afterlife, or the miraculous. Obviously, they didn't believe that there would be any resurrection or that there was any resurrection, as the old joke goes. That's why they were Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. At this time, the Sadducees were in control of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious Jewish council of Israel. The Pharisees also made up the other part of the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were always fighting, but they found a common enemy in Jesus because apparently they both felt he was a threat to their power. So they worked together to conspire to murder Jesus. Verse 33, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So wait a minute. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, seek and you will find. And now he's saying, you will seek me and will not find me? What's going on? The answer is found back in the Old Testament. I put it on your outlines in Jeremiah 29, 13, where the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when. Underline that word when. It's the qualifying word. When you search for me with all your heart, with all your heart, when you're just hungry for the Lord, when you just want the truth, when you're ready to come to him and honor him as God, when you've determined, Lord, I just want to do your will. I just want to know you more so I can do your will. I want to see you so I can worship you. I want to have a greater revelation of you so I can worship you in a bigger way. I want to know more of your will so I can do more of your will. When you come to him like that, not coming before the Lord so that he can solve your problem or coming to the Lord so that he can help you with your agenda or or coming to the Lord so that you can evaluate whether you want to do his will. But coming to the Lord because you just want him. Does he care about your problems? Of course. But the first reason, the primary reason we go to Jesus is because we need a savior. He's our creator. He's our Lord. We approach him as that first. We don't begin our relationship with God by saying, I've got a money problem. I need a God. We begin our relationship with the Lord by saying, I've got a sin problem. I need a savior. And whatever that savior requires of me, I'm, I'm in because he's God. He's my savior. When you have ulterior motives, the Lord says, hey, you won't find me. You won't find me if you're just coming to me with your own agenda. But if you're coming to me for me, if you're coming to me as Lord, if you're coming to me as Savior, you'll find me. I promise. 
Verse 32 tells us that Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees and chief priests when he says this. And to them he says, guys, I've, I've just explained to you that your reasons for wanting to kill me make no sense. The people are asking out loud, what else do I need to do to prove that I'm the Messiah? You know in your hearts that I am who I say I am, but you won't receive me. So know this, while you claim to want the truth, while you claim to long for the appearing of Messiah, you won't find him because your agenda is still more important to you than your need for a savior. I'm right here and you are going to miss me because you're not seeking the Lord with all your heart. It can be right into your nose and you can miss him if you're not seeking him with all your heart. But praise God, if you are, you won't be able to miss him. The heart that you and I are to have when we seek the Lord, when we desire to connect with him, is the heart that Jesus revealed when he taught his disciples how to pray. And he told them, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. If I'm struggling to to find the Lord, to connect with him, I need to check my motives. Is my primary motive Lord, I want to know you and your will that I might do your will. Or is it, Lord, there's some stuff I need you to take care of for me. And if your will fits my life goals, then I'm all for it. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They're just saying, is he planning on going and teaching the Jews who live in the Greek towns around Israel? Is that what his plan is? What does he mean when he says he's going to go somewhere we can't go? They don't realize Jesus is talking about heaven. Verse 36, what is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. We're going to conclude in just a moment, but I want to ask you this. If there is any way you can not miss next Sunday, don't miss next Sunday. It it is going to be so powerful. I'm so excited to teach on what the Lord's going to say to us through his word as we keep going through John 7. We're going to be talking about what to do when you find yourself in a season. You find yourself in a place of spiritual dryness. Maybe you love the Lord. You love his church, you love his people, you love his word. You're not walking in any major sin, but you're just, you're just dry. You do not want to miss what the Lord wants to say to you next week. If you have something going on and you can move it, you can cancel it, do it. And I guarantee you'll be blessed. Please don't miss next week. God has got something powerful to say to every single one of us. This week, everything we've studied is another one of those portions of scripture like last week where we're just moving through a season of Jesus's life, some different topics and issues, and there's no one mega theme, and so I pray that the Holy Spirit has illuminated at least one thing that you needed to hear this morning, and you zone in on that one thing. You focus in on that one thing. The only thing I'm going to highlight in conclusion is the religious leaders awe over the power that was on Jesus, despite him having no seminary education. And I want to highlight again in Acts, the religious leaders awe over the disciples' power and boldness after they received the Holy Spirit, despite having no seminary education. The power they had came from spending time with Jesus, just as the power that Jesus had came from spending time with his heavenly Father. I don't know what challenge you're facing in life right now. I don't know if you wish you could be bolder for Jesus if you wish you could 
fix your marriage, if you wish that you could turn your kids back to the Lord or get out of debt. But here's what I know. Seminary is good. Books are good. Conferences and courses are good. Systems are good. Counselors are good. Those are good things. But it's not just about what you know. It's also about whom you've been spending time with. And investing time in your relationship with Jesus will bless and empower every single area of your life. My life. When we spend time with the Lord, there is more happening than we could ever possibly understand. There are changes taking place inside of us at the deepest of levels. Our character is being shaped. Our mind is being transformed. Our heart is being softened. We are being made more like Jesus just from spending time with Jesus. It's not just what you know. It's whom you're spending time with. And if you're facing a challenge where you just don't know what to do, let me encourage you. Will to do the will of God. Determine that, Father, whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. Make that decision before he reveals his will to you. And then he'll reveal it to you. Get to that place where you say, Lord, however much I have to humble myself to fulfill your will, however much I have to sacrifice to pursue your will, whoever I need to apologize to, however I need to serve somebody, wherever I need to go, whatever I need to do, Lord, I'm in. I want to know your will so that I can do your will. I will to do your will. And if there's nothing you can seem to do to fix a situation, just begin to spend time with Jesus. You won't believe how it will change you. You won't believe what it will do in your life. There's nothing better we can do with our time than spend it with Jesus. Spend it with Jesus. And then maybe your word today was practical wisdom combining with God's plan. Hey, God wants good things for you, but he has a part for you to play in that. If there's an area where you're stuck, maybe what the Lord is saying to you today is, hey, we need to do some practical wisdom here. There's some practical things you need to do to give the Lord some opportunities to do good things in your life. Maybe that's you today. If it is, listen to the Holy Spirit and take those steps this week. Let me pray for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for explaining to us how, how even your will works. I pray that in us, you would find people who are determined to do your will, who are committed to your will long before it's even revealed to us. Lord, I pray that we would not be hypocrites claiming to want to know your will while ignoring the will that has already been revealed in your word. Help us yield, help us live in surrender to your will and to your word, Jesus, that life might flow to every single area of our lives. Help us to be yielded to your will in our marriages, yielded to your will, in our parenting and in our families, submitted to your will in our jobs, in our schools, submitted to your will in our service to you, Jesus. May you be first in everything, Lord. That is the place you deserve. May we be solely concerned with your glory, Jesus. Our prayer is that you would be glorified in every area of our lives. We love you, Lord. It's in your mighty name we pray, Father. 
Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.